Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Grace and Peace of God, Love Wins. Today, we're exploring the privilege of holiness. We have a beginning in Genesis, and we have an ending in Revelation. So right up front, I'm going to take you on a tour of beginnings. So I want you just to hold these thoughts in your mind as we travel through to today's podcast. So ready? Let's go ahead and get started. The beginnings from the book of Genesis. Keep in mind the sun was created. Satan is victorious. Sin enters the human race. People run and hide from God. People are cursed. Tears are shed with sorrow for sin. The garden and the earth are cursed. Paradise is lost. People are doomed to death. (laughs) So it's pretty heavy for beginnings, right? But don't worry, we will make it through to the endings. So I'm just curious now, what do you think occasionally about striking a nerve? Is it always a bad thing or in reality, might there be merit to unearthing one's pain points? Or how about hitting the wrong key on the piano, thus striking a wrong chord? And let me ask you this, how then do good people allow evil into their lives? I've got one answer for you on that one. It's trust. It simply stems from trusting the wrong people. Our source should always be place God first. He should be first and foremost above all. And yet many people, myself included for many, many years, literally were raised to seek out the opinions of others. And this creates a weakened person who spends much of their existence in a deficit always attempting to recover. But God's word has all of the answers that we need. We no longer need to seek other people's opinions. And looking back, I can definitely appreciate that my mom told me, if you'd like my opinion, she was more than happy to offer it to me, but she never pushed it on me. And there was even one of the smartest people I've ever known said in effect, opinions are like your bottom side, your backside, everyone has one. And, you know, reflecting on that, I can't agree with that statement more. But God told Israel to destroy seven nations when they were about to embark on some new land. And so these were enemy nations and he wanted them destroyed completely. But how could this be? I mean, we're talking about God wants to destroy nations. Well, it's very easy. God is merciful, but he's also a just God. And although these seven nations were as much a part of God's creation as Israel, their evil could no longer be overlooked. God allowed for Israel to be the instrument he would use to punish these other nations. Prior to this, Israel had been punished themselves when those who had disobeyed God were kept out of the promised land. So he is true to his promises. And by God declaring to Israel to destroy these nations, he was issuing a two-prong approach. First, he was issuing judgment. And secondly, it was a safety measure. And let me explain what I mean here. Judgment was upon the people that were already living in the land. And then secondly, there had to be protection for Israel moving into the land so they wouldn't have been ruined by the immorality or the idolatry that was from the enemies that once had occupied the land that 
they were completely going to destroy. So now fast forward to Israel versus the Moabites and the Ammonites. Who won that battle? Well, the answer to that is neither one. That's right. They were never allowed to fight because Lot was Abraham's nephew who was living in Sodom and Gomorrah at the time when angels arrived on the sick and sinful city and decreed to Lot and his family, you need to get out now and not look back. So they had their way of escape planned. And what does Lot's wife do? She immediately looks back, turning herself into a pillar of salt as her punishment. So then it leaves Lot and his two daughters who settled off in a cave. And when the girls hatched a plan to trick their father into sleeping with each of them by getting him drunk, they were doing that to carry forth the family bloodline. So these groups of people became Israel's enemies. Yet Moses was forbidden to attack them because of the family connection. You see, Ruth was the great-grandmother of David, who was an ancestor of Jesus, stemming from, you guessed it, Moab. So one of the ancestral relationships. So you can see people and God have been contending with evil in the world since its inception. Up until this point, the Israelites were used to dealing with evil in their own way. They would avenge themselves. And that was until God placed a new and better command in place for Israel to follow. And God issued a call for justice. We find that in the book of Exodus, chapter 23, verses 4 and 5 where he wants them to love their enemies. He says, if you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that is strayed away, take it back to its owner. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you struggling beneath a heavy load, don't walk by, instead stop and offer to help. Wow, that was new. So the thought of being kind was new and startling in a world where revenge was the common form of justice. God not only introduced this idea to the Israelites, he made it a law. And if a man found a lost animal owned by his enemy, he was to return it at once, even if his enemy might use it to harm him. Jesus clearly taught to reach out to all people in need, even our enemies. Following the laws of right living is hard enough with friends, but when we apply God's laws of fairness and kindness to our enemies, we are showing the world how different we truly are. And another great illustration for loving our enemies is found in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 11 and 12. And this is looking at David and Jonathan becoming friends and King Saul also becoming jealous of David. And of course, King Saul is Jonathan, Jonathan's father. So the verse says, suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David jumped aside and escaped. This happened another time too, for Saul was afraid of him and he was jealous because the Lord had left him and was now with David. So after David had killed Goliath, there was a victorious Israelite army. They're returning home. The women came out from all the towns singing. They were celebrating and they were cheering King Saul. And then they sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. But this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. 
So Saul's appreciation for David turned to jealousy as people began to applaud David's exploits. In a jealous rage, Saul attempted to murder David by hurling his spear at him. So jealousy may not seem to be a major sin, but in reality, it is one step short of murder. Jealousy starts as you resent a rival. It leads to your wishing he or she was removed, and then it manifests itself into seeking ways to harm that person, whether it's in word or in action. And God's word does say that we can literally murder with our words. So we need to be aware of letting jealousy get a foothold into our life. And while Saul was still on the throne, Samuel anoints David as Israel's next king. And young David then bravely conquers Goliath, the Philistine champion, and he establishes a lifelong friendship with Jonathan, who was Saul's son. And when Saul realized that David will become king one day, he grew very jealous and tried to kill David on several occasions. But David did escape into Philistine territory until Saul was killed in battle. And when treated unjustly, we should not take matters into our own hands. God, who is faithful, just, he sees all that's happening, and he will judge all evil. We just have to remain calm and give it time. And 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14 tells us, Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. What was this tormenting spirit that the Lord sent? Perhaps Saul was simply depressed, or perhaps the Holy Spirit had left Saul, and God allowed an evil spirit or a demon to torment him as judgment for his disobedience. And what this demonstrates to us is God's power over the spirit world as well. So either way, Saul was driven to insanity, which led him to attempt to murder David. And this brings us to one of David's many Psalms in Psalm 109 verse 4, where we're still told to love our enemies this um, the theme of this psalm was righteous indignation against liars and slanders. And we can tell God our true feelings and our desires, and He'll listen. But so, verse four. Let me read that to you. It says, "I love them, but they try to destroy me, even as I'm praying for them." Wow. So David was angry at being attacked by evil people who slandered him and lied. Yet David remained a friend and a man of prayer. While we must hate evil and work to overcome it, we must love everyone, including those who do evil, because God loves them. We're called to hate the sin, but love the person. Only through God's strength will we be able to follow David's example. And I often find my own life parallels with some of David's psalms. God wants us to seek his justice while simultaneously extending his mercy and grace to those who have hurt us. And I'm not going to pretend that's not a tall order, but what is true is that we can do it in God's strength. We have the same power that raised God from the dead living inside of us in the form of the Holy Spirit. So one of the questions I've been asked during the angel Bible studies that I've done is, does God allow angels to entice people to do evil? And to understand evil, one first has to understand God. First, God himself is good. And this statement is backed up in Psalm 
chapter 11, verse 7. It says, For the Lord is righteous, and he loves justice. Those who do what is right will see his face. Secondly, God created a good world that fell because of man's sin. It had nothing to do with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 supports this, stating that when Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So then you may ask, well, how can we be declared guilty for something Adam did thousands of years ago? I mean, that's on him, right? Well, many feel it isn't fair of God to judge us because of Adam's sin, yet each of us confirms our own heritage with Adam by our own sins every day. We've got that same sinful nature, and we rebel constantly against God, and we're judged for the sins that we do commit. Because we're all sinners, it really isn't fairness that we're needing. I think we all are really needing mercy. And someday God will recreate the world and it will be good again. That's the promise in Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And fourthly, we look at God is stronger than evil. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 through 43, it says, I, the son of man, will send my angels and they will remove from my kingdom everything that caused sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the furnace and burn them. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And weeping, what that means is simply there's going to be sorrow or there's going to be remorse. And gnashing of teeth is extreme anxiety or pain. And then the godly will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen and understand. So at the end of the world, angels are going to separate out evil from good. And there are true and false believers in all of our churches today. And that shouldn't surprise anyone. But we should be cautious in our judgments that we make because only Jesus is qualified to make that final separation. He truly knows hearts and minds. And if we start judging, we may damage some of the good plants that are among his children. So it's more important to judge our own response to God than to analyze others. And people who claim they don't care what happens to them after they die really don't know what they're saying because they will be punished for living a selfish life and having indifference toward God. And God tells believers that we'll shine like the sun in his kingdom, standing in contrast to those who will receive judgment. And I found it interesting in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3, he puts it this way. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like stars forever. I mean, don't you want to be a true radiant star by being wise and leading others to God's righteousness by sharing the Lord with others? You and me will be beautiful in God's sight. Unlike the stars of the world who find that their stardom in the world of entertainment is fleeting, it's very fickle. And then finally, God allows evil, and thus he's got control over all of it. And although God did not create evil, he offers help to those wishing to overcome it. He tells believers in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, 
Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke fits perfectly, and the burden I give you is light. And you might be wondering, what the heck is a yoke? This is another agricultural example from Jesus. But a yoke was a heavy wooden harness that fits over the shoulders of an ox or oxen. And then it's attached to a piece of equipment that the oxen are to pull. And that's simply acting as a metaphor for a person who might be carrying heavy burdens of sin or excessive demands from leaders or oppression, persecution from the outside world. Whatever it is, weariness maybe for their quest for God. Jesus is our freedom from all of these burdens, and Jesus offers us love, healing, and peace with God. We'll have spiritual productivity and purpose when we follow God. And finally, we're told that God uses everything, both good and evil, to serve his purposes. In the story of Joseph, he reassures his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As far as I'm concerned, God turned into good what you meant for evil. He brought me to the high position I have today so I could save the lives of many people. And God brought Joseph good from the brother's evil deed against him, Potiphar's wife who had false accusations, the cupbearer's neglect, didn't keep their word, and then seven years of famine that he had to endure. And these experiences are proof that God brings good from evil to those who place their trust in him. So today I'm asking myself the tough question, do I trust God enough to wait patiently for him to bring good out of a bad situation? And I ask you that same question. Do you trust God enough to wait patiently for him to bring good out of a bad situation? Personally, my answer is yes. I choose God. He can overrule people's evil intentions and hearts to bring about his desired results. He works on our behalf not to make us happy, but to fulfill his desired results through us. And you know, sometimes it may appear that our world is falling apart before our very eyes, but I'm telling you, it's only falling into place. Typically, battles are waged where the outcome is up for grabs, but not this one. Here, this is no contest for our almighty God. While a dueling dance persists between the mighty forces of evil and all the fallen principalities of the beast and Satan, in the end, the Bible plainly tells us of the outcome. The evil beast and his forces are captured, thrown into the lake of fire, and fire from heaven devours Satan and his attacking armies. For God, it's as easy as that. There will be no doubt, no worry, no second thoughts. For believers about whether they've chosen the right side or not, if you're with God, you'll experience this tremendous victory with Christ. And so that brings me to Revelation, to the end. First, we said the sun was created. Well, guess what? The sun's no longer needed. We said Satan had been victorious in Genesis. Well, in Revelation, Satan is defeated. Genesis tells us sin entered the human race. Guess what? Revelation tells us sin is banished. Remember where I said people run and hide from God? Well, people are invited to live with God forever in Revelation. 
People were cursed in Genesis, while the curse is removed in Revelation. Tears are shed with sorrow for sin. There's no more sin, so no more tears or sorrow in Revelation. The garden and earth are cursed, while paradise is regained. God's city is glorified, and the earth is made new. And people were doomed to death in Genesis, but guess what? Jesus defeated death. Believers live forever with God. How is that for good news? So Jesus's first coming brought forgiveness. His second coming will bring judgment. The line has been drawn in the sand between God and evil, and the world's waiting for the king to ride on to the battlefield. So friends, if you want to become a child of the Most High God and spend eternity in heaven rather than elsewhere, I'm inviting you today to pray this prayer of invitation to our Lord. Simply repeat, Lord Jesus, I repent and turn away from my sins. Come into and take up residence within my heart. I believe your blood was shed for all who believe that you took on the sins of humanity at the cross of Calvary. Amen. And friends, if you prayed that prayer of salvation with me, then I believe today you were born again spiritually. Congratulations. Your next step is to read God's word daily so he can guide, direct, and reveal himself to you. And get into a good Bible-based church where you're surrounded with other believers. And that will be the most important decision that you have ever made. So as you prepare to go out and about within the world today, I'd like to pray the priestly blessing over you. It comes directly out of the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.